Welcome to episode 57 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. Today is Sunday, July 26th, 2020. And that's something that we've been bad at remembering to do. Like every other episode, I remember to give out the date, like I said I was gonna. Speaking of other things I've been bad at doing, I guess, I'm still working on the podcast. Today is Sunday. Friday is when I was supposed to put it out. I'm hoping that you'll see it Monday night, Tuesday morning. We'll see how that ends up going. The pandemic and quarantine have been really weird, I think, for a lot of people. But also me. For some reason, it's made it very difficult for me to maintain my routine, even though to some extent I kind of have more time. I also, in other ways, have no time that I haven't had to deal with before. Like, we've talked before about how I had a discussion with my parents and close friends before having kids to get their buy-in on helping us out. And now we haven't been able, because of safety reasons, to have anyone help us with the kids at all for four months. And Alyssa's mom fell and broke her arm immediately at the beginning of the pandemic, so she hasn't been able to help us. And our roommate's helpful, but can't take two kids, so we, we haven't been able to have no kids for four months. So I, who have never even been willing to have the modern regular, not ever previously regular, but modern regular, there's some really interesting stuff about in the native environment, the babies would transfer hands on average like 10 times an hour, so 10 different caregivers per hour would help with a baby. Oh, wow. Which is great sounding to me. Right, where (laughs) do we sign up for that? (laughs) Yeah, I know. So I tried to do as best I could. I don't think I got that close, but I did pretty well, I think, all in all. It was a little bit more bricked still. It was still like, you take them for six hours, you take them for eight hours, you take them for four hours, but that the total amount of time that we had them was very reasonable. And then the pandemic hits and all of our caregivers are geriatric and Linda breaks her arm. And so it's like now no one can take them. And so it's worse. My parents are the ones that I learned from to never, ever have kids away from family because they moved really far away from their family and then had kids. And we're like, we were completely on our own. Right. We had to take care of them constantly. There were no breaks. Don't do this. The only breaks were when we hired babysitters. That was the only time we got to be alone. I listened very carefully. They didn't realize I was listening because when I said, I'm not (laughs) doing this, they were like, why not? And I was like, because you did. And it was bad. Right. So for four months no help, and can't hire a babysitter. So I have had it even worse than they had it, and it is rough. And my mom likes to say, you can't explain to someone what it's going to be like to have a kid before they have them. And I'm like, no, no, no. I did a lot of research. I knew exactly how bad this was going to be. I had planned for it. I had caregivers. We were fine. You didn't plan for a pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like, it's, you can totally understand what having kids is gonna be like yeah. if you do enough research and tr- testing, but you didn't know a pandemic was coming. I mean, there hasn't been one in 70 years. <laughs> right. Yeah. My teenagers stopped seeing their dad right around the beginning of the pandemic, and it didn't really have anything to do with the pandemic. They were in our quarantine bubble to begin Mm. with. They just had it out with their dad and stopped seeing him. Fair. So two teenagers in my house for the last four months with nothing to do and nowhere to go has been uh, a learning process. (laughs) Everyone gets their own different nightmarish alternate pandemic reality. My problem is that with a six-month-old and with a four-year-old, you never can put them both down there's no time i at 45 minutes a day 45 minutes a day when i wake up at 5 45 in the morning between then and 6 30 when my oldest gets up on his own and yeah like he sleeps in a room with where we closed off all the light and have a sound machine making wave noises and he still gets up at 6 30 and he doesn't go to bed until 9, 10. So he only sleeps just 45 minutes more than I do. <laughs> and like less than Lissa does. So, so, so there's 45 minutes in the morning that I have to myself. And that's, that's it. And those aren't reliable 45 minutes because I don't always wake up at 545. And right. if I do wake up at 545, I'm not always awake. Coherent, yeah. You know, it sometimes takes me 15 to 30 minutes to become a person after I wake up. So I have between 15 and 30 minutes. And sometimes if I'm lucky, he'll sleep another 20 minutes or more to, to be alone. And Lissa has 
no alone time. Yeah, let me let me tell you the only alone time I get is when I'm cleaning, when I'm doing something mm. because they scatter when that's happening. Sure. But when I want to sit down though, when I want to sit down and relax, it's mom, mom. Yeah. And the, and let's argue because everything is argumentative right now. Let's argue about everything. Whatever I say is not right. It can be debunked. It's the sky is purple. It, you know, grass is blue. You're an idiot. Yeah. And that's that brain glucose issue, which is that because you're forced into closer quarters, you're just having more conflicts per hour, mm-hmm. which means they have less chance of recharging and it's more likely they'll be out of energy. And if they're out of energy, then it just gets emotional and angry and non-productive yes because my son also he's four so he's reached during the pandemic what's recorded as the most argumentative age and he's stuck in a tiny house with us all the time so a lot of things are crazy fights he's in the burn it down knock down drag out mode where once the fight starts he'll be like take all of my toys and burn them. I hate you. I'm kicking you out of the family. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sit in a corner and I don't want to do my favorite thing. It doesn't matter what you offer him. I don't want it because you're offering. Yeah. That tired thing is right because their sleep schedules are all fucked up. Yeah. They're up until four o'clock in the morning. I don't have that problem. You have that problem. My son's on the same sleep schedule he's always been on because we enforce a sleep schedule because he's four. But a lot of parents whose kids are older, for sure. Right. Like you said, when they're tired, it's worse. Mm Mm-hmm. They're always tired because their sleep schedules are all fucked up. Well, like I said, I would almost take the getting to clean kids scatter right now. Because when (laughs) I try to clean, my kid materializes on my arm, literally holding my arm like a dead weight, trying to do whatever the cleaning task is. Oh, and you're not, you can't do it. Yeah, you just cannot do it. Yeah. You'll be cleaning your kitchen knives and he will ask, can I clean the kitchen knives? No, you can't clean the kitchen knives why can't i clean the kitchen knife all right well let's work on bowls and then he takes the hose and just sprays it on the floor right and you know my son has a problem with eating so i'm the only one that can get him to eat so i don't even have meal times meal times are prime play with my child to get him to eat time and then as soon as meal time's over what what fun activity are we going to do now i need to work but i want you to play with me I need to work. You have to spend all this time negotiating to be able to get to work. And he's got nothing, nothing to do Mm-mm. but try and stop me from working. So you can't tire him out. You can't distract him. You can't outlast him because he can't do anything else. I'm actually in a really good mood right now, but I have been in a really bad mood for like a week. Yeah. You know what I need? I need a massage. That's what I need. I need somebody to take the tension out of my shoulders. The post-pandemic podcast, I swear, you can go back and it's like every other one low-energy podcast where I'm speaking far too fast and I'm way too loose and I have to delete large chunks because I'm listening to it. I'm like, that is wrong. (laughs) Well, just way more context. Yeah. That when I get low energy or comfortable, I don't think about contextualizing things enough. And I'm listening into it and going, the way that I said that could really be harmful to some people who don't have the rest of the context that I was thinking. And nowhere in this podcast do I circle back and provide that context, so I can't use it. This most recent podcast, actually, this is a good tie into where we're headed. I think it's really good, the one that came out just before this one. But we were sort of, based on the questions, hyper-focused on the negative social emotions Mm -hmm. and how social emotions are damaging. And I'm listening to it and I'm going, this sounds like a potentially damaging gaslighting tool. That if I don't do some sort of additional information about this, I could see someone playing that episode to a partner and saying, see, you responding emotionally to me abusing you means you're a bad person. Mm. So I saw this potential issue where we were focused focused on how social emotions can be negative and how social emotions evolved really to be controlling and how they're correlated with a lot of abusive and boundary crossing behaviors. That the benefit of anger is that it feels like something the other person's doing to you so you feel justified and then the anger scares people and they stop doing things. But I also was talking a lot about in that episode how to be less emotional, but I meant the specific emotion 
emotions that I was talking about. So anger, disgust, hate, and then trying to evoke in the person you're talking to intentionally shame, fear, and embarrassment. Those are bad things to do. Intentionally. And directing anger, disgust, or hate at other people is bad. But humans are going to have emotional responses. One of the most common forms of what's called epistemic violence against women and minorities, really anybody that's not white, male, and hegemonic, is to claim over-emotional. And you see this over and over every person I've had to work with who's been abusive has claimed that everyone else is being too emotional. Mm -hmm. I'm not abusive. You're being too emotional. She's being too emotional. She's a crazy person. Too sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. They make that claim and I definitely don't want anyone to misinterpret last episode as weighing in against emotion. And I don't think that anybody will, but this is a great clarification for it to kind of show the other side of it. So, And I also think there's a really great opportunity here to talk about the good things that emotion can bring to conversations, which we didn't talk about last time anyway. So it's both a good topic and a good clarifier. Mm -hmm. So one of the prime focuses that we have in this show is trying to increase authenticity, which just means being true and honest to who you really are. And mostly it means avoiding self-lying, but it also means bringing more of yourself to the engagement. So the first part is the self-lie, which is everyone is emotional in difficult conversations. Yes. So when someone says stop being emotional, that's inauthentic hypocrisy. They're being really emotional too. They just think that having a stoic face on or talking in a certain measured tone means you're not emotional. And they're lying to themselves about how emotional they are, which we've talked about before. Uh very short epistemic rabbit hole. So epistemology is how we know things, or the study of how we know things, which we've touched on before. And there's the concept that some positions are epistemically privileged. So that means in a better position to know things. So we, on this show, for instance, hold that people who have lived experience are epistemically privileged about their own lived experience. Women are the best authorities about what oppression for women is like. Correct, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But the historically epistemically privileged position is the neutral position, the view from nowhere, the mythical, completely detached, unemotional, uninvolved, with no stakes, neutral arbiter. Unbiased. And what we have learned through many, many psychological studies is that even people that appear to be engaging in that position are not. They are steeped in their own biases, their own needs, their own emotions. They're just displaying them in a way that is not reading as emotional, not reading as biased. So it is much better to put your biases into a frontline position where we talk about our biases and don't pretend that one of us is unemotional and talk about the emotions that you're processing. It is totally okay to say, I am realizing that this conversation is making me feel angry. I would like to take a break from it until I can approach it without feeling angry or at least start from being a less angry position and try again until I get too angry in order to avoid getting to the level of anger where you are violently displaying and manipulating people through violent displays. Right. Or you can you can step back and process in a way that's going to be more productive. So describing your emotion is fine. For instance, I have never once said to someone, I'm realizing this is really making me angry and upset and frustrated. Can we take a break? And had them respond by cringing and acquiescing to all of my demands, which is what happens when you actually display anger, say punch a hole in a wall, scream at someone while being much larger than them. So the negative outcomes that you're concerned about aren't part of relaying your internal emotional state. It's about scaring people or controlling people with your method of display of that internal emotional state. So then far from that, most forms of emotional display, I also don't think are problematic at all. I think they are authentic. Displaying sadness responses, for instance. If you're having a discussion and your partner begins to cry, that's not an attack against you. When people say that's emotional blackmail when women cry, which I have heard people say and have had relayed to me by women that people have said to them, that is what we were talking about on the last episode where that person hasn't done the self-work to deal with 
with their own shame response. You know what I hate? Mm. What I hate to hear is when someone starts crying and somebody goes, oh, don't cry. Why not? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with people crying. This is a display of how I'm feeling. My body is reacting to sadness or overwhelming sure. joy or something to display these tears. Yeah. Why can't I cry? Oh, I'm sorry. Am I making you uncomfortable? Is that why I can't cry? <laughs> yeah. And that's that's exactly what it is, is that person feels uncomfortable with emotion. Right. And they're asking you... To dial it back. Yeah. And they're really uncomfortable with the emotion that they're viewing. And we've talked about... There's a couple of different problems that could be going on here, and we've talked about them in different episodes. One is, I think this was two or three episodes back, is the empathy slash mirror neurons problem, mm -hmm. which is if a person's been taught they're not allowed to cry, which is most men, then when they see someone crying, the mirror neurons that they do have are going to represent the emotional state they would need to be in to cry. And since they spent their whole life quashing the ability to cry, they read the emotional state as being so over overwhelming that panic, it overwhelms panic, all panic. logic and sense yeah <laughs> that the only reason that they would cry is if the worst imaginable thing happened to them yeah. so they read women who haven't been taught to kill their own emotional centers who cry for any reason as being dialed up to 12 mm -hmm. and completely irrational and crazy and of course they also were never taught how to have conversations while someone's crying that was never on the docket of teaching them manly skills right so that's one problem that you can be having is the specific toxic masculinity problem or the mirror neuron problem and that can happen even if you're just a person who cries less so mm -hmm. even if you're just dealing with someone who doesn't cry often but the other problem as we've said is that we don't get a lot of training in how to work through difficult emotions with others. So when I was a child and I hurt my brother's feelings, I do not remember getting together and working through why I felt the need to hurt his feelings, how he was hurt, what I could do to make him feel better, if anything, what he wanted to tell me, what I wanted to tell him. It was simply a situation where, and this is my memory, obviously, so it's not perfect. It could be, this isn't exactly what happened, but is that my parents would hear the stories from us usually then weigh in on who was right and then ask the other person to apologize maybe ask us both to apologize yeah and that's basic and if you didn't apologize you also got in trouble for not being willing to apologize right and what was going on there was that my unwillingness to apologize was because i had unreconciled emotions i felt that my protest gesture and we've talked about protest gestures before but they are if you've ever felt that feeling where you want to hurt the person in front of you even though it's someone you normally care about you just want to say something mean or nasty or hit them that tends to be a protest gesture it means you've been emotionally overwhelmed and your brain and your body is just trying to get the situation to stop it's trying to de-escalate in the fastest possible way the feeling shut it down yeah and by lashing out at that person you stop whatever's happening right now again quick aside i have talked to some people who've misinterpreted protest gestures as being automatically valid that is not true when someone does a protest gesture if that protest gesture is abusive or over the top or damaging or violates a boundary you need to hold them just as accountable i think that knowing why they did that is helpful mm -hmm. but it isn't an excuse for that thing happening unless it doesn't actually bother you so i just wanted to say that i've been very aware of that since i had that conversation where someone was talking to me and they basically said hey this person did something and i said oh this is very dangerous their response is abusive and they said oh i think it's just a protest gesture i'm like that doesn't mean it's not abusive though <laughs> is true you are correct you're both this is a this is a both situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a protest gesture, but it was abusive. And you can't have abusive protest gestures as a regular part of your day. Right. That's going to be damaging over time. When you have that feeling, because you don't always act on it, you sometimes you just want to hurt somebody and you don't. That usually means you become overwhelmed emotionally. And that is often why we lash out. And as adults, we need to develop these better communication skills. But when I was six and I did something really nasty to my brother, it was because I felt 
hurt by him. And then my parents came back and correctly identified that my behavior was abusive and said, you need to apologize, you were abusive. They didn't help us reconcile the underlying emotional conflict, which is something that children would benefit from learning how to work through, but it's something that most of us were never really taught how to work through. The thing we were mostly taught to do was just to minimize how often we lash out, mm -hmm. but not how to actually reconcile the underlying cause with that relationship. So not changing the relationship so that that lashing out doesn't feel valuable to you or that it's valuable less often, but just to, as Manny likes to say, put the kibosh on it. Right. So you feel that emotion welling up and you just go, no. <laughs> <laughs> But then you blame yourself, too. You know, you have that internal shame and guilt where you think, oh, I can't believe I wanted to say this horrible, nasty thing, rather than what's happening here that's so egregious to me? Why is that happening? And untangling it so that you don't feel that way. And so I think that's the other thing that's going on is that when someone starts to cry, we've been taught to apologize. And that's really the only response we have for doing things wrong. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. Don't cry. It's okay. I'm sorry. I right. didn't mean it. I'll do whatever you want. But none of that resolves whatever the conflict was. It just sets you up to have that same problem again later. Because you, the person not crying, acted in a way that made complete sense to you. And then that other person started crying. And then you just shut down emotionally and tried to shut them down emotionally. Yeah. And I've seen that used in abusive ways where people will use crying to get out of a, a speeding ticket or, you know, out of an argument with a parent or a spouse or partner. Well, and I'm going to be honest. I don't know that getting out of a speeding ticket is abusive. I'll, I'll leave that one to the side because I don't really believe in speeding tickets. Right. But I mean, they abuse that, that, that crying ability. People that they can just turn the tears on and use it to their advantage, I guess is what I'm saying. So to my mind, though, that is a problem with the person who perceives crying as being unengageable. If you perceive crying as being a natural, emotional, authentic outpouring, and you engage the person who's crying in a helpful discourse about their crying and about their needs, then crying isn't abusable. No, but in a lot of cishet men, they don't know how to, to deal with it, to process it. So there is a greater possibility for that to be used to manipulate them. Eh. I am unsympathetic for a couple of reasons. The first one being that this is just more good reason for them to resist toxic masculinity. If you go out and you unlearn your toxic masculine behaviors and you learn emotional engagement and emotional skills, then this isn't going to be a problem for you. I mean, I guess I'm not, I'm not opposed. Now that I think about it, I'm not opposed to people manipulating toxic masculinity to their favor. Right. And that was the other thing I was going to say is if you're in a relationship with someone where this works because of the ingrained level of toxic masculine behaviors they have, I am sure that you are getting the short end of the stick still. Yeah. So like one of my partners, the person, I guess everyone, but the major relationship that they had before me was with someone who was a traditional guy's guy, car guy, country guy, manly man, you know, kind of guy. And I remember in our early fights, they would sort of immediately go to 11. They'd just start punching the wall, smashing stuff, screaming, crying, falling apart really early on in the discussion. I was like, this is way over the top. There's no reason at all that you should already be crying and smashing things at the very beginning of this discussion. I'm trying to figure out what made you unhappy so we can fix it. <laughs> Like, I know you're unhappy. You don't have to prove to me that you're unhappy. I'm trying to fix it. Right, and, and what their response was eventually was, oh, it's really surprising to me that you already heard me. That in my last relationship, they would treat all of my concerns as unimportant until I went to the mattresses. And then they would listen. I mean, I've had, I've had that experience too, so I understand that. Yeah, so I also feel like it's reciprocal. Because you could say, well, they were being manipulative. They were crying at this toxic masculine person. And they went there immediately. As soon as there was a problem, they immediately went there. But that's because it, no one would listen to their problem unless that happened. And if you have a problem, people should listen to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
So I can't really blame them for talking in the way that that person was able to engage them. I don't think it was healthy for either of them, but I'm certainly not looking at the person who's crying and going, oh, you're manipulative. Oh, that was unfair. Oh, that was bad. Because again, they were getting the short end of the toxic masculine stick every single day. Right. And that was what they felt they had to do. If you cannot escape a conversation with your parents unless you melt down in tears, that's a toxic scenario. You should be able to excuse yourself from that conversation with simply, hey, I'm feeling overwhelmed by this right now. I don't have the energy for this conversation right now or whatever. I just don't want to have this conversation right now. Can we return to this later if it's really important to you? And they should just say, sure. So my guess is that if someone melts down and cries to escape a conversation with their parents, it's because they don't feel safe just asking to leave that conversation. And they don't believe for a second that if they did, they would be told that they could leave that conversation. They would at minimum get shaming out of it or embarrassment out of it. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you not a big enough girl to have this conversation with me? Right. You know, (laughs) some sort of intentional emotional infliction. I don't know. I've had my teenager go, oh, can we have this conversation? I I can't have this conversation right now. Or can we finish this later? Because he didn't want to get in trouble yet. You know what I mean? But also, you know, like if my kid says that, which he's done before, well, I don't know that he's old enough to have that extended thought, but my response is just to say, that's not a problem. I'm happy to talk about this whenever you're ready. But just so you know, until we talk about this and I just give them their punishment. Right. Or their consequence, you know, so this is the consequence. You can't have your tablet. If you'd like to talk about it, I'm ready whenever you are. If you want to know why you can't have your tablet, I'm ready whenever you are. Mm -hmm. Take all the time you need to become emotionally prepared for this conversation. Right. And you get much better results. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because then they're willing. Then they're willing because then they're they're getting they're getting a positive out of it. Whether, you know, even if it's just information, it's a positive. But that's what all of those discussions ought to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, you shouldn't be punishing your children for anything that isn't in their best interests. If you're punishing your children and it's not in their best interests, you are not doing a good job at guardianship. Right. You're abusing your role. So the goal then would be to help them see how that's the case so that they view those conversations as opportunities instead of costs. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have the problem where my teenager knows he fucked up. He just doesn't want the lecture. You know what I mean? He just doesn't want the lecture right now. So can we do this later? That's fine. You're still grounded. Yeah. Like you're still... <laughs> well, and it still seems like they're going to get more out of that lecture later and they're going to come to you and they're more emotionally prepared to hear it. Yeah. So even if it's only a little bit more they get out of it, it doesn't really matter to you when you explain to him how and why what he did was wrong, right? Right. And those are those fights that I don't think necessarily need to happen, but... <laughs> Like the fight over, you got to hear this right this second. Yeah, yeah. And that feels more like, again, an inappropriate protest gesture on the parents' part. Like, you're just so frustrated that your kid did something, you want them to immediately feel the pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And like, if that's the goal, like you need to stop and question your own motive. We did hostile emotions last week, so I don't want to spend too much time on that. Because if you want hostile emotions, go look at last week. But so I think that most emotional displays are a gift of authenticity and a communication that often communicates complexities that are otherwise unable to be communicated. So we did talk about how shame, blush response, etc. for shame or embarrassment were designed to be sort of tools of authenticity really. They were supposed to showcase how you actually felt inside in a way that simply saying, okay, I feel bad, I won't do that again, doesn't do. And that's what I feel about crying. Like, crying shows that this is really serious for you, I think. And there's a difference between what I would think of as being emotionally overwhelmed and crying and crying at someone. So that experience that really overwhelmed me where I said, what's going on? The crying was clearly at me. It was like mixed with screaming and it was over me and it was into me. It wasn't like the person was trying to talk and kept choking up on tears. It wasn't like the person was trying to explain the problem and just kept getting overwhelmed and processing and then crying and then calming down and then talking some more and then crying some more, which is totally good mm-hmm. thing to do. It was more of a performative wailing almost. Right. There were tears involved in it, but it was clearly something else. And crying is really good for you. Crying releases endorphins. Crying releases stress. Crying is a form of emotional reset that actually prepares you to have be able to engage more clearly in a later point in the future. It creates a natural pause. And if someone's crying with you, 
feel flattered because it's such a vulnerable emotion. In our culture, for some reason, it's right. so bizarre, but it's like people feel like they just can't do it. And it's insane to me. Right. So, it, I mean, a lot of people can't. They can't let that emotion out. So if somebody is crying with you, feel flattered and encourage them to let that emotion out. It's such a sign, like you said, in our culture of that vulnerability and for that person to feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable with you. It's it's a compliment and it's flattering. So please don't tell them to stop crying. And so obviously that's crying. And there's lots of other emotions that people can also feel and express during a conversation with you. Like if someone gets really excited and starts talking a mile a minute, or if someone gets really frustrated at their inability to explain something and is gesticulating and you can see the emotion on their face, those aren't attacks on you. You know, the person experiencing frustration, experiencing sadness, experiencing excitement. Passion. Yeah, I mean, those right, those are not attacks against you because anyone, if they try hard enough, can learn to talk in a sonorous semi-monotone through any emotion. They can learn to talk right through whatever it is they're actually feeling and pretend indifference. But how boring and inauthentic is that? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but also, those emotions are still all there. They're still all there. That if you think you're not having those emotions, you definitely are having those emotions. And the people that have claimed to me in my experience that they're unemotional are the people who I see the most emotion from in their responses because they'll say I'm not having this discussion as long as you're crying at me that's a hugely emotional response yeah. you're saying I'm shutting down and can't even talk to you because there are tears present don't tell me you're not having an emotional response you're shutting off your brain yeah. due to tears that is a overwhelming emotional response that's far beyond the response of the person crying it's self-deception. Humans are emotional beings. It's hardwired into us. Nobody is the detached advocate, and especially not in negotiating their relationship and their relationship to others, including in even abstract ethical debates, because ethics is always about how you're supposed to relate to others. You're always a stakeholder. There's no ethics debate imaginable where you're not also a stakeholder. You're just less of a stakeholder if you're more removed. So yeah, you know, I think that wearing your emotions where the person that you're engaging with can see them, I think that those things are beautiful. And I think it's something that you can talk about early on with the person that I have done to great effect, such as saying to someone, how do you want to be treated if you do start crying? Do you want me to stop the conversation and come back to it later when you're feeling more up to it? Do you want me to continue the conversation with you? You can ask them in advance. You can ask them when they're crying. I think checking in is always a great option. So if someone starts to seem to get frustrated saying, hey, you seem frustrated. I can understand why you would be frustrated given what you're trying to explain to me. Are you okay continuing to have this discussion right now? Yeah, providing that space either at the time or holding that space for them in the future if they can't handle it at the moment is so important. Yeah. To go back to the boring thing, personally, I want people to be as fully and brightly themselves as possible. I don't want people who are spending time putting themselves in little boxes to make themselves more culturally appropriate to other people. I think that if you stifle your negative emotions and your positive emotions, you know, your happy emotions are, are going to end up being stifled as well. I don't think that you can just suppress, you know, one type of emotion that you don't like in some way. I think everything ends up being suppressed when you do that. So then you don't fully feel or experience life when, when you're doing that. One, I do think that you can't get clear of emotions you don't work through. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's harder to have truly joyful moments if you've never worked through all your frustration and anger and resentment because somewhere that's low-key burning inside you all of the time if you refuse to engage it. And I think that's one thing. I also think that if you nurture the value that emotion is weakness or emotion is bad or emotion is 
not as cool or strong or masculine or whatever virtue you're trying to attach it to. I think that will dull all of the emotions because for sure I was taught large expressions of joy are unmanly. It makes you sort of weak and kind of pathetic to get excited about things. I remember that I was fairly easily excitable and that getting excited definitely lowered my manliness bar on people's readings of me back when I was younger. I assume still if you are in that wheelhouse, I'm just not around people who are in that mindset anymore. So that That for sure is true because if it's a value for one, it's usually a value for all. Like being unemotional is better means you're going to try and tap down all your emotions and all of your emotions will always be unresolved. Right. And ironically, like we talked about, you know, in the conservative episode, people who often accuse other people of being afraid are the most afraid, Mm -hmm. as it turns out. And I think that's also going to be true of the emotions because sometimes I just have no emotions because I've worked all of them out. (laughs) You know, I'm not currently happy about anything particularly, but I also have no other emotions at the moment because I've worked through them all. So I'm just sort of neutral. Whereas I don't think that that was true at all before I started accepting having the full and wider range of emotions. I think I always had unresolved emotions I was processing and therefore was actually more emotional and more prone to emotional responses. But the emotional responses tended to look like me stoically staring at something and saying, you shouldn't be so emotional. rather than having a discussion about it with the people who were important to me. Either way that you come at it, express them all and and work through all of the emotions because it's going to make the good ones better. Yeah, and anytime you leave an emotion to fester, you just get resentment, which is an extra bonus shitty emotion. Because you need one more damn emotion. Yeah, and in my experience, the biggest issue about resentment is it amplifies that sense that the other person is at fault for your emotion, rather than that the emotion is about how you're responding to the context in play. Again, outside of like abusive scenarios, other people are not responsible for your emotions. Other people just make you aware of something you didn't know before, which is one of those things that's always been shocking to me is when people get mad at things that you make them aware of that are just always true. And like, they just didn't know it before. Like if someone has a favorite movie and then you point out how that movie's actually super racist or sexist or something, and then they get mad at you. And you're like, I didn't ruin the movie. That movie was bad. (laughs) You just didn't notice yet. The movie was already bad. It had all these nasty undertones in it. You just didn't notice it until I pointed it out. Don't be mad at me for ruining it. Be mad at it for having that problem. This is my biggest issue with rereading sci-fi and fantasy books that I used to like, by the way, now that I'm super feminist, (laughs) is it's always terrible. I was reading this book that I used to love. I remember thinking the romance was sort of shallow and lame, but now I'm like, oh, God, what am I reading? Because the romance is that the head of the palace guard is in love with the princess. And there's like so many weird, creepy, stalker, sociopath warning signs in this story. Like he spends a lot of his time in the early book thinking about how he'll never have a wife because nobody could ever live up to this princess who he hasn't even talked to yet. He's just sort of idolizing her from afar. And therefore it's not worth even having a partner if it's not this partner. Yeah. And I'm like, oh man, that's... textbook stalker objectification making an idol out of someone that's impossible (laughs) and then she has a twin in the book and he ends up adventuring with the twin for a long time and like 90% of his dialogue about the twin is how the twin is such a little boy child and I'm like that person's the same age right? as your love interest. When you're like, oh, look at this kid, little more than a child in age. That's the same age, man. (laughs) And I know it's supposed to be, I guess, in the time period, but this is a total fantasy world. There's fairies. The continents look nothing like our continents. It's definitely not our planet. They have different ancient Greek gods. There's no ancient gods that are like them anywhere on our planet. They have magic and fairies and stuff that are totally different than the fairies that we have and the magic that we have. So it's a whole alternate universe written in like the 1990s. You absolutely could have not made the main male character a weird pedophile trying to marry a teenager. (laughs) That was a total option that you had that no one would have found fault with. And literally all you had to do was make those characters 
five years older right so they weren't kids because they're definitely teenagers i think they're 17 i have no idea how old the guard captain is supposed to be but i'm pretty sure guard captains are older are like 25 to 35 years of old he's a guard captain and he's still like twice her age and he's been the guard captain for like three years so he's been watching her from 14 to 17 and that's what he's really into oh yeah that got creepy too yeah but has never had a conversation with her super creepy pure objectification pure idolization not okay and you know and then of course they end up together in the end and it's a great looking relationship quote unquote and you're like i wonder if it would be if she knew how much he stalked her in the beginning (laughs) right i don't think it was (laughs) do you not think that it would be no i think that that would not have worked out if she had access to his internal monologue for the first two books before they end up together and i always found that really interesting how people will read that when it happens to someone else it's romantic but when you have a stalker it's not romantic (laughs) yeah yeah well, and it's because it works out is the other thing. None of the bad stuff ever happens. But again, it only works out because she doesn't know that he stalked her for four years. <laughs> and because it's pseudo-mythical. Yeah. She is somehow all of the things he imagined. The reason that that stalker behavior is because he would have imagined, I mean, given how many specific virtues of hers he imagined, there have to be at least some of the virtues that he imagined which she does not possess. So that even if they did start dating, so he has his fantasy fulfillment she would start to quote unquote disappoint him by not meeting some of the objectification made up person that was her right and that's the other thing of course is the book sort of end with their whirlwind romance and getting married and i'm pretty sure that if there was a follow-up 20 years later it would be like the abuse of the queen would be the book because there's no way that dude is not really damaged and messed up in that relationship moving forward there's just there's no way but i didn't get mad at feminism as i've read a lot of things about like feminism ruins books feminism ruins movies i was like ah this was always a terrible book (laughs) okay i see this romance was always creepy and weird and bad i didn't for a moment be like oh, i wish i didn't know so much it would make books more fun right i just thought i wish there were more books that weren't problematic yeah. you know <laughs> like i wish that there were more feminist authors was where my brain went with that and not that there aren't more just you know these are books from back in the day that i read you know right but it's the same thing with emotions if someone starts crying when they try and explain how they felt when you did something to them that is how they felt that is how they feel that is the situation that exists don't ask them to turn that off If your response is, now you made me feel bad about what happened, they did not. They explained how they were feeling. Mm -hmm. If you feel bad as a result, that might be a good thing. Maybe you should feel bad about what happened. Maybe you should work with them on ways to avoid both of you feeling bad in the future. And good for you if you feel bad for hurting somebody. And also, I think the other option is also totally valid. And I think you have to be ready for that option if you're going to share your emotions actually vulnerably, Mm -hmm. which is sometimes people especially young people like my kid will tell me they're really upset about something that is honestly not something that I can feel bad about and my response sometimes is even just to laugh like you won't let me jump in the six degree lake that would kill me I don't want to be in your family anymore (laughs) okay man okay (laughs) like first you're clearly way over the top there's no way you don't want to be in my family you always ask me for everything all of the time who's gonna feed you yeah if in an hour (laughs) mom was like i'm your only family left dad's not part of your family anymore you would just be bawling about getting me to come back you overshot first of all like we talk about the opposite which when you're trying to give kids boundaries you need to give them punishments you can follow through on like when people go i'm gonna cancel christmas no one's canceling christmas you're not gonna can't get fuck out of here with that same thing you're out of my family okay but then also you're mad at me for not letting you check the notes die yeah like okay be mad yeah i'm sorry you're upset and maybe later we can talk about this but i have that well my partner we have a very good relationship and i don't know if it's something that's just part of our characters or something that you could actually work up to but for sure i have absolutely had her tell me something she was mad at and my response was just to laugh really hard in her face because it was surprising and ridiculous and I couldn't figure out how that was my fault and that actually worked like she was like well now I'm not mad at you anymore and is laughing but I would not expect that response but again I think being able to share genuine emotional responses 
responses. So it's not like I derisively laughed. Whatever it was, just it was surprising and funny to me. Right. That's just my sense of humor, and that was funny, and I don't think that I should have to hide that I think that that's funny to spare your feelings any more than I think that you should have to hide that you were sad to spare mine. But like, if you're crying so they will hurt, though, then you're back to the problem, like we said before. You should never be trying to make someone feel shame or guilt or pain. You should be trying to express your needs and boundaries and assessing whether or not they are willing and able to meet those and then making healthy decisions for yourself around that information. So if you express to someone, this really hurt me and they laugh at you and your response is, okay, why did you laugh at me? And they explain why they thought that was funny and you think this person can't respect my boundaries and can't meet my needs for making me feel healthy and happy and safe then it's totally okay to respond with, well, I think maybe we should break up if that's how you're going right. to respond to me doing this. That's fine too. But if you have that, definitely question, look in yourself and ask, did I show them that I was sad so that they would be sad? Right. Or did I show them that I was sad as a starting point for a negotiation? Because that's the other thing is I would still negotiate even if I thought it was funny. I might think it's funny and be like, I'm sorry that I think that's funny if that upsets you, but I would like you to not be hurt, but it's also funny. I mean, it's like schadenfreude. If I fall over and you laugh at me, I'm not going to be angry that you laughed at me for falling over, especially if I fell over in a particularly humorous way. I'm going to laugh at you, but I'll help you up. Yeah, as long as you also (laughs) help me up. I definitely have had some hilarious Warner Brothers cartoon-worthy injury moments in my life, at which point people that I cared about laughed hysterically while trying to get over to help me out. That's fine. That's fine. Again, you really need to think about what your goal is with sharing. Your goal with sharing should be, I'm in pain. Can you help me not be in pain? You shouldn't need them to be in pain as part of the process. Because if you do feel that need, there's something that you need to work out in yourself that's uncharitable and unkind and kind of toxic to be in a relationship with. Yeah. You really just have to question yourself is like, why do I feel the need for my partner to hurt like I'm hurting? Because that's not love. Right. That's not love. If you want your partner to hurt, that's not love. So think about that and assess that and, and, and see, you know how much it sucks to hurt. Why would you want someone that you love to feel that? Right. Yeah. And you don't need them to have that in between step to... To understand. To honor your needs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they don't even need to understand to honor your needs. This is true. Yeah. Understanding is often helpful especially if they feel like it's a difficult request, for instance. But that's more of a question of what they need. Mm-hmm. So if your partner's like, I don't understand, but I'll work on it with you. Right. Fine. If your partner's like, I don't understand. I need to understand, yeah. And I need to understand before we can work on it. And they're willing to have that discussion to understand, also fine. Great. And there may be situations where all you need is understanding. Like what you mm-hmm. want out of the situation is understanding. But again, if they're not willing or able to give that to you, that doesn't make them a bad person. It makes them a poor match. It makes them non-compatible. So you shouldn't be trying to inflict on them. You should be evaluating the fitness of the relationship. And that's the thing that I think is interesting is I think a lot of times, a lot of times when people are interacting, they're not thinking about the fitness of the relationship in the interaction. They're just responding emotionally. And sometimes you don't have a choice in the moment other than to respond emotionally because we get overwhelmed by our emotions. We move into emotional headspaces and we've talked before about tricks and tools to kick people out of emotional headspaces, like asking them a very logical question or asking them a question about how they're behaving differently than normal. So if the person does something that seems like it can hurt you on purpose, saying, hey, it looks like you tried to hurt me and I know that you care about me and wouldn't normally try to hurt me. Are you okay? We'll often kick them out of that headspace and get them out of that fight or flight response, Mm -hmm. get them into the ability to have that conversation with you. But oftentimes what happens is that person goes, I says something designed to hurt you because they're already in their fight or flight response or in their protest mode and you go into your protest mode and you're just fight or flighting and protest moding back and forth at each other until it explodes. You're just flinging insults at that point and nothing productive is happening at all. But later, when you do calm down and you do look back over the situation and you think about next steps, you should be looking at is that question, what's the relationship fitness? What is my actual need here? What are my boundaries here? What would I need from 
from them to make this relationship still meet my needs and bring that back to the table, not your unresolved emotional conflicts, because a lot of those were misunderstandings anyway, like linguistic misunderstandings, or maybe one of you was just really tired when the fight started or had just already had 30 interruptions that day, because, you know, so much weird stuff gets tangled in emotions mm -hmm. like we talked about earlier. And they overlap. Emotions you feel with one person overlap with another person, especially in polyamorous relationships. Well, whenever you have to make a difficult decision, it drains you. Yeah. So if you just came off making 40 difficult negotiations and decisions, got home, and then your partner was like, hey, where do you want to go to eat? And you were like, fuck it. Right. <laughs> you always ask me that and you never want to go where I want to go. <laughs> I'm not eating with you. And it started off hurtful, but there could be totally good contextual reasons that happen. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make it okay that it repeats or if it comes up a lot, like that's a problem. You need to talk about it with this person. <laughs> But it is okay. So yeah, I, I think we're definitely out of time. I really need to stop talking for an hour and a half. Editing these hour and a half episodes is fucking killing me. <laughs> so yeah, the big takeaways are... Okay, so first of all, emotion does not undermine the viability of what you are saying. Unless the emotion is intentionally harmful. Or is one of the harmful moral emotions. So if you're feeling anger, disgust, hatred, or attempting to evoke, or probably if you're feeling significant shame or embarrassment, embarrassment, you should take a break until you're able to engage that conversation in a way that controls those emotions so they cause the minimum amount of harm. But other emotions that are there just to convey experience, joy, excitement, sadness, frustration, irritation. Feel them. Feel them. They're important to be felt. Express them. Show them to your partner. Be authentic with your partner. And accept those emotions. Hold space for your partner to have those emotions as well. Make sure you're there to hold that space for them when they can express it. And don't make them express it when they can't, but hold that space for later if they can't do it at that moment. Right. And we talked about that a lot in the grieving, the whole process. If you So if you want to go figure out, have like an episode that's basically 50% on how to hold space for difficult emotions, go listen to the grieving episode, but also allow other people to have the form of authentic emotional expressions that you would like to be able to have yourself and assume the best until you know otherwise. So just because you tell your partner something and then they start laughing at you doesn't mean your partner is cruel. It doesn't mean they hate you. It doesn't mean they don't care. Maybe they had an experience today that is just makes this funny because of the absurdity of the coincidence or they, maybe they misheard what you said. There's lots of different reasons, but what's important is about working through your needs and boundaries, not controlling how their emotional responses happen. It's like the opposite of the old, you can't wish for a partner who's psychic. You also can't wish for a partner who's just going to have the emotional responses to the stimulus that you experience that you want them to have. Mm -hmm. Like these are full-fledged people who are going to respond with the full range of emotions and trying to shut that down. There's no variant of this where you try and control what kind of emotional response they can have that doesn't cause them to shut down emotionally and be less complete, full, authentic partners. I have this saying that I tell my kids and it just kind of made me think of it. Remember that it's not all about you unless it is. Then we will assess that because my kids like to make things all about them when it's not all about them unless it actually is all about them and then it will be. They understand it. It's... <laughs> okay. Like I said, schadenfreude is a thing, man. A lot of people just pretend they don't think your pain is funny, but it's hilarious to them. And I would honestly rather have my partner laugh. At least I know they got something out of right. it. Like, I'm in pain, but at least they're having a good time. They're paying attention. As long as they're going to work with me so that I don't hurt again. Like, right. that's the thing. If you hurt me so you can laugh at me. That's shitty. If you hurt me by accident and it was funny to you, well, okay. As long as you're laughing and helping me at the same time, we're fine. Right. All right. Thank you so much for listening check us out on facebook and check out our other 56 episodes for some of the things that we mentioned in this one uh, or you may have referred to another episode they're all really really good all right everybody have a great night we'll see you next week Thanks. ish whenever i finish editing it bye bye